I've had a good week this week. I enjoyed going to the FIRE conference. Our church is a member church of FIRE, and I was in Ohio with actually Tim Hawley, Jr. We, we enjoyed each other's company as well and the preaching of God's Word. And so I got to be ministered to this week uh, really richly. Um, it was a blessing. And then a wedding last night, and so as a result, this week we're going to go back to Daniel again and look at Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And uh, this morning, we're not going to look at Daniel's prayer and how it fits in the, in the bigger picture of Daniel, because we're not preaching through Daniel. Um, we, I did do that in another sermon, so there's another sermon on Daniel 9 that looks at what it's doing in its place right there in, in, in that chapter. Um, but this morning, we're just going to look at this prayer as a model for us and ask God to teach us to how to pray. Um, that's one of the things in this, that I, I was convicted about even through some of the preaching is needing to be taught how to pray and needing to be encouraged to pray and to realize the power and effectiveness that that has. This is going to be specifically um, prayer of confession. And um, in particular, we're going to see that Daniel gives us a rich vocabulary of prayer. Sometimes we just don't have words, right? We, we, we pray and we kind of have this nebulous maybe idea of I should pray, but we don't have words to pray. And we need, we need a vocabulary. So when you learn a different language, you learn the vocabulary of the language. You have your vocab cards. And in this sense, this is what we're doing this morning. Daniel is going to give us a rich vocabulary of prayer. So you could make a list. You could, you could make a vocab list from this chapter. Um, but the ultimate goal is not, is not the vocab list. The ultimate goal is the heart of prayer that's expressed by these words. And so I pray that the Lord um, really teaches us through this. So we begin with Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made, a king, made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. I'll just stop there for a moment so we know that the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon, the people of Judah in particular here, and, and uh, um, Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah, which isn't that long before Daniel. So he's already reading his book. And, and he sees in the book, he reads 70 years, and he says, it's about time. Look, this is about the time that God's supposed to now restore us according to his promise. And so we read what Daniel does next in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. It's interesting that Daniel describes what he did as a, I turned my face to the Lord God. Now, I don't know if there was maybe a literal sense in which he did that, because maybe he prayed, as we know in an earlier chapter, he would sit at his window and face towards Jerusalem, 
where the, the temple, the ruined temple was, but where God had promised to put his name. So maybe when Daniel says, I turned my face toward the Lord God, there's a literal sense in which he was facing the direction of the temple. But the literal sense goes deeper. What's the significance of that, of that imagery? In the book of Jeremiah, the Lord says to Israel, they have turned their back to me and not their face. And so what the Lord desires from this analogy is that we, all of us, turn our faces to, to him and not our backs. So there's a picture for you. You might ask yourself, what part of you is facing the Lord today? Is it your back or your face? It's a picture, when Daniel says this, it's a picture of transparency. Now, we don't need to be transparent with God, right? Because God doesn't... I'm always transparent before God. He sees deep into my heart. He knows me better than I know myself. He always has and always will. But when I, when I turn my face to God... I'm simply acknowledging that he does know me and see me. I'm just confessing, I'm just acknowledging that I can't hide. That I am, that I am open as an open book before the Lord. He sees. So when Daniel says, I turn my face to the Lord, I think that's, that's what he's referring to. It's of honesty before God. It's the opposite of trying to hide. We talked this morning about Jonah fleeing from the presence of Yahweh. Or we could go back to Genesis when Adam and Eve hid from the presence of the Lord. So we all, we all have done our... We, but just by turning our backs, it's that, that's that sense of, I don't, want, I don't want to be real with God. I don't want to recognize the fact that he knows me. He knows what's in here. At the end of the prayer, Daniel is going to speak not of his own face, but of the Lord's face. So this face is a vocab word here. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. In verse 13, Daniel is going to speak of entreating the favor, and your, your translations say entreating the favor, but it's literally entreating the face of the Lord as in a face that smiles on us. A face that, that shines upon us. Like when in the ironic blessing May the, the Lord's face shine upon you. Lift up his countenance upon you. And so what, what we have a picture is that we turn our faces to the Lord God in prayer. With transparency and honesty. What we desire is the restoration of fellowship with God and the enjoyment of his favor. Here's the picture. His face shining on us as our faces are turned towards him. Not hiding not running. So Daniel says, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him. Face, our, in our Hebrew vocabulary word, we paneh. Seeking him in Hebrew is bakash. Seeking him. By prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And again, I just asked, I start, I start here with me, but certainly... I'm, I'm seeking to be a tool to, to preach to you, to preach God's word to you. And so the question we ask ourselves is, do we seek him? 
So it's a simple question, but but important. Do we seek him? To seek after the Lord, what does that mean? What does it look like to seek after the Lord? Certainly, it's not an exercise in just feeling like I'm seeking him. Or, I mean, what do you do? Is this some mystical exercise? No, uh, here in the context of Daniel, it requires a turning away from our sin. Because we're all seeking something. We're either seeking our sin in our own selfish ways, or we're seeking the Lord. We're seeking after him. And so it requires that turning from our sin when it was our backs that were toward the Lord. So Daniel says, I I turned my face to the Lord and sought him. It requires an honest confession of our sin with our faces lifted up to him. So what does it mean to seek the Lord? I would like to say that I'm someone who seeks the Lord. I would like to say that of myself. But okay, so okay, what is that? What does that mean? And it certainly requires, first of all, as the foundation of all true seeking after the Lord, a humbling of myself before him. Daniel, like he, he visibly expressed this humbling of himself by even fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Of course, we're not going to do sackcloth and ashes. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should. Maybe that's a way. We ought to, we ought to express this humbling, this fasting. What? Fasting. But, but there's this sense where he said, I'm serious about humbling me and seeking the great God. Daniel turned his face to the Lord and sought the Lord, he says, by prayer. Here's another, some more vocabulary. Tepila and please for mercy that's just one word in the Hebrew so we put it three words please for mercy but it's tachanun tachanun and that one word is, sums up everything we're about to read in Daniel 9 the whole thing is please for mercy that's the whole thing the point of these pleas is not that Daniel thinks God is unlikely to be merciful that's not the point point. and when I think of making of pleading with someone I kind of you you can kind of get the uh, the vibe that the one you're pleading with is like okay I don't know I'm I'm reluctant I'm hesitant and that's not at all the point here the point of Daniel pleading is not that he thinks God is a reluctant standoffish God that's not that's not the point the point is is the full recognition of my own sin and spiritual poverty that leads me to feel deeply I don't have any claim on God. The point is not what I think God is like. The point is how I've come to see myself. And when I see myself truly, I plead. That's why. It's because I saw myself, not God. It's not his reluctance. It's my unworthiness. We see that we have no claim upon God in ourselves. And so we can only plead with him for what? Mercy. Mercy. Mercy is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Although, at some level, it's something we we don't like to admit that we need. In verse 17, Daniel concludes his prayer with the same two words. Here's our vocab words again at at the end of his prayer. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer, to Pilah of your servant, and to his pleas for mercy. Tachanun. Do we know how spiritually bankrupt we are. 
Have we sought after the Lord by prayer and pleas for mercy? And again, that's not a feeling we work up inside ourselves, as we'll see in a moment. And this is good news, because at the end of the day, any of us who have tried to work this up inside of ourselves feels the futility of it. We feel that it just doesn't, it's, it's, it's empty. So the good news is that it's God's word that produces this in us. Okay? So we don't have to, we don't have to wait around for something to strike us or for, for me to work hard enough. We, we need to be confronted with the word of God as we are this morning. And God's word comes into us and it does its work in us. That's the power of his word. As, as Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing right to the division of joints and marrow. And so, the word that Daniel uses for seeking is first used in a context of seeking the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 4. The first time we ever see this vocab word for seeking God is here in Daniel, Deuteronomy 4. If you act corruptly by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. But from there, you will seek. Um, seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. The very, the, the, the very passage Daniel's just been reading in Jeremiah. He's just been reading this in Jeremiah. And so... Uh, So he says in Jeremiah 29, or Jeremiah does, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Again, what does that mean? Does, does that mean that God is, God is saying, I'm hiding from you, and when you look hard enough, you'll find me? Is, is, that, is that what this is? So that we have to work, work ourselves up sufficiently so I'm seeking him hard enough? And there's a lot of Christianity that thinks like that. That, that, that it's, a, it's a pietistic Christianity. And I like the word pious and piety. It's a good word. But it's also used in our day in a negative way. So that we have to be this, there's this, this pietistic Christianity that ends up focusing more on my efforts and my spirituality and my devotionalism and, and me attaining all of this so that I can find him if I look hard enough. Right? But if that's not what Deuteronomy means or Jeremiah, what, what does it mean? It means this. This is, the, this is true. It means that we're not being hypocrites. That we're not being, in your handout, double-minded, as James would put it. Not half-heartedly seeking him, quote, seeking him. Well, all along, what I'm still really seeking is my own ways. That doesn't work. You won't find God like that. We just don't find God like that. That's why it says, when you seek me with all your heart, all your heart, 
doesn't mean with enough emotional fervor. Although, that's fine. All your heart means not hypocritically, not with half your heart still running after your own ways and you kind of think you want to seek me, but really you actually still want to seek that. No, we have to seek the Lord. So the only way to truly seek God is by definition with all our heart. There's no other way to seek God. There's no other way. And there's no other way to find Him. Truly and sincerely. So I'll ask you again, as I've asked myself, as I think on these things, do I seek Him? Am I seeking Him? So Daniel continues in verses 3 to 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying... O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Well, he's quoting God's own words about himself from Exodus. And and Nehemiah does the same thing when he prays. Here's a pattern for prayer. You can pray with these words, with this vocabulary. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And what, you know, the basic point of these verses is that there's no fault in God. That's like something we all know. But when we really get that, it'll rebuke us. It'll rebuke us in a good and healthy way, right? There is no fault in God. How much, of our, how much of the time in our life do we live in such a way that we, practically speaking, impute fault to God? What Daniel is acknowledging here, what Nehemiah acknowledges, is that he is great. He is awesome in all his ways, including in his perfect faithfulness. That just has a way not only of exposing our our sin, but of exposing all the different ways that we act as though he is not great and not awesome in all his ways and not perfectly faithful. What would my life look like if it was one constant acknowledgement of God's perfect faithfulness? What would it look like? So it's against the backdrop of his perfect faithfulness that our unfaithfulness, not the unfaithfulness of the person sitting next to me, mine, when I get his perfect faithfulness, my unfaithfulness is revealed to me to be all the more blameworthy. If I'm faithless, you know, in, in a sense, to a friend that I have, even, I suppose, in a sense, to my, to my wife. I mean, we could, in our sinfulness, excuse that because, well, they're faithless too, right? You can't do that with God. He's only faithful. It's all he is, all the time. He's the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We are those who by nature break the covenant and fail to truly love him by keeping his commandments. So just to make this, to put this in perspective, 
The covenant is the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. We know about that. The Ten Commandments is summed up in the Ten Commandments. Even the Gentiles, who did not live in that covenant with God. God didn't make that covenant with them. But even they were guilty of sin. So, so you didn't have to be an Israelite with the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone to sin and break God's law. But it is the covenant in the Old Testament that brings out into such bold relief the true depravity of our sin. So watch how this works. Because I can get, okay, my sin, I've broken God's law. Now that's horrible if we really grasp that. But there's something even worse. The people of Israel didn't just break God's commandments. It's not like, they, it's not like God said, here's a list, do it. No. They broke those commandments in the context of a relationship of sworn covenant commitment and faithfulness. God said, this is the covenant I make with you. The people of Israel said, yes, we agree, right? And it was a good and a beautiful thing. God said, and I will, I will, I will carry you, right? And he did carry them. He was faithful to them. He was in relationship with them. He put his presence among them at the tabernacle, uh, in, the, in, the, in the pillar of cloud and, and a fire by night. He, he was in covenant relationship. And so it's this unique sin of Israel in the context of a relationship of covenant that reveals the true depravity of all our hearts apart from God's sovereign grace. It's one thing to break a law. That's bad. That's deserving of hell. It's another thing to break a law that was given to us in covenant relationship. And to break that law persistently. God isn't just a law giver, brothers and sisters. He is a covenant maker. And we're not just law breakers here. We are all law breakers, but we're covenant breakers. By nature. There is no fault in God. He is only and always faithful. It's against this backdrop that we feel the full weight of these next words. Daniel, continuing now with the vocabulary, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly and rebelled, we have turned aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And so, this is the main vocabulary, among a lot of others, but this is the main vocabulary Daniel teaches us. It's that of confession. And so each one of these six expressions is just a single word in the Hebrew. So when we hear, we have sinned, we hear three words. You read it in the Hebrew, it's just one word. Chatanu. That's it. We have sinned. Awinu. We have committed iniquity. Hishanu. We have acted wickedly. Maraznu. We have rebelled. Sure, we have turned aside. Lo shamanu, we have not listened, obeyed. So Daniel's got six different words here. He uses these six words 18 times. You know, Jesus said, don't use mindless repetition. But there is a good repetition, right? And Daniel's showing us what that looks like. 
If we look ahead, he adds two more words. In verse 7, Daniel speaks of Israel's treachery, in which they have acted treacherously, ma'alu, against the Lord. And then in verse 11, he, he adds another vocab word. And he says that all Israel has transgressed, avaru, God's law. And now we could, we could take all these different words for sin and iniquity and God, breaking God's law, and we could maybe look for different nuances of them, and like this kind of emphasizes that aspect of sin, and this emphasizes that aspect of sin. But at the end of the day, I don't know that Daniel's doing that. Daniel's just, Daniel's just aware of the failings of God's people. And he's got eight words for it. His point in piling up these synagogues, these synonyms, all the biblical vocabulary for our covenant faithlessness, is to emphasize and acknowledge our own guilt and accountability. That's the word I think is really important here. So a lot of Christians today might ask Daniel, Daniel, is that really necessary? Is it really necessary to focus so much on our sin? Do we need eight different words repeated 21 times in this short prayer to describe and identify our sin? And the answer is yes. We do. We need this. The point is we must own up to our sin. We talk about sin at Living Word because it's in the Bible. But this reality of owning up to my sin for what it is. All of it, in its full extent, not whitewashed because we instinctively whitewash, not excused because we instinctively excuse, not minimized because that's what we do, but for what it really is. So for Israel, in covenant with God, their sin was a purposeful turning aside from God's more vocab, commandments, mitzvah, rules, mishpat, or or statutes. And in verse 11, a transgressing of God's law, Torah. Notice again the vocabulary and the point. Daniel has these synonyms again, and it's not to emphasize all God's commandments and laws and rules. I got so many words for these rules because they're so burdensome. That's not his point. His point is to drive home again our guilt that God laid out his rules plainly in plain sight for us all to see and we all know. And he even, in the beginning, in the garden, kind of basically kind of put them in our heart. Right? Not the new, not the new covenant putting in our heart, but we have them in our hearts. We know them. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1? Even though they knew the righteous decree of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they still practice them. Not one of us have ever, have ever uh, well, I suppose there is some level of ignorant sin, but, but we are all guilty of presumptuous sin. Right? How many of us have knowingly sinned, knowing that was the righteous decree of God, and then knowingly gone and done what he has forbidden, or not done what he has commanded? That's why Daniel emphasizes God's commandments, rules, and laws. Daniel will say in verse 10 that God set his laws before our faces. And even as Gentiles, again, we see that we knew God's laws from when we were in covenant with God. We knew full well the Ten Commandments. And yet we too have turned aside and transgressed. How have we done this? 
coveting, lusting, hating, stealing, lying, dishonoring authority, taking God's name in vain in, in, in the way that we live and the way that we bear his name, even worshiping idols, even worshiping other gods. And so we ask, and I ask myself, have we learned not just to speak these words, but to confess from our hearts, I have sinned. When's the last time you said that to God? Maybe it was yesterday. I'm not saying you haven't. But how, how often should we? I have sinned. I have committed iniquity. I have acted wickedly. I have turned aside. I have not listened or obeyed. I have acted treacherously. I have transgressed. This is the gospel, isn't it? I mean, we're getting to the gospel. This is the package of the gospel. And so it's been in being able to speak these words, I have sinned from our hearts to God in prayer, turning our faces to him, not hiding, not excusing, not running, but transparently before the Lord who sees our hearts anyway, so what's the point of trying to hide? So as we do this, that we're truly enabled to seek after the Lord, Daniel continues in verses 7 to 8, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, shame of face, paneh, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of their treachery in which they have acted treacherously against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. you you'll notice the repeated vocabulary in those verses. But what I want to emphasize here is Daniel doesn't complain, does he? He doesn't complain about the terrible consequences of Israel's sin. We look at consequences and we're kind of like, ah, how can I get rid of those? I, I, we're not necessarily so interested in God's, what God is wanting to work in us through the consequences or the discipline. We just want to get rid of it and get rid of it fast. Right? But Daniel's point is not just to get rid of the consequences. He sees this, these consequences and he doesn't complain about them. He doesn't question, God, isn't this too severe? Why did you do this way? Why did you do it to this extent? Instead, look at this. Look what Daniel does. He sees Israel's exile and all the lands to which God himself has driven them. And when he sees that, and it was a terrible thing, all he can do in response is ascribe righteousness to the Lord. So when I feel like I'm being disciplined, when I feel like maybe I'm suffering some of the consequences from my sin, I have to just ascribe righteousness to the Lord. Whenever we think on the judgments of God, as painful as they may be, we read that in, I just read from Hebrews chapter 12 and God's discipline, which, which is painful, right? But even as we know the pain of it, we know the righteousness of the God who inflicts it. As terrible as they may be even, we should always be led to the same conclusion that Daniel was to see in these judgments always the perfect righteousness of God. Always. And here's another vocab word for you. This righteousness, this tzedakah. 
God's, it's this righteousness of God's judgment is revealed to us in two ways. First, God is never unfaithful to his word, to his promise, to himself or to us. Second, he is the one who always keeps, well, that is, that is the first one. He's, he keeps covenant and steadfast love. He's righteous. Why is he, how is he righteous? Because he always does right by his word. God is righteous because he always does right by his own word, what he has said. So on the one hand, there's the perfect fidelity and faithfulness of God to his covenant. On the other hand, there's the treachery that we have committed against the covenant. Now, not, the, not so much the new covenant. There's the difference there. We could uh, be careful here. But the covenant that we were in with God in Adam. So therefore, as David says, what does David say? God is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. Have we ever not agreed with David here? Now, we would never maybe do it out loud or explicitly, but have, ever we, have we ever questioned whether God is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment? Especially perhaps when his disciplinary actions are affecting me or affecting others. Maybe I question that. But Daniel and David both ascribed righteousness to God in all of God's judgments against us. We see only the glory of his perfect righteousness. Let's put it this way. In our condemnation is revealed his righteousness. Now we like to say, and we, it is true, that in our salvation is revealed his love, his grace, his mercy. But just so we know, that in our condemnation is also revealed the glory of God. In my condemnation would have been revealed the righteousness and the glory and the, and the perfections of God. That's unsettling to us, I think, in a sense. And yet it's in understanding that that we can also see our only hope of salvation. In my condemnation is revealed the glory of God. So when we confess with Daniel in verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, then we can understand the necessity of being able to say in verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and pardon. Now this is why I've been working so hard, we've been working so hard, so that we come to these words and our hearts melt. Our hearts melt with joy and gratitude and wonder. For we, here, here's why, why do we need mercy and pardon and why, why are we rejoicing that to our God belongs these things? I'm not going to rejoice that mercy and pardon belong to God if I don't feel that I need it. That's why he says, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. What's our only hope? We know we can't merit anything from God. Therefore, we can only encourage ourselves with these words and we ought to encourage ourselves every day with these words. Try it, do it, use this vocab. To the Lord our God 
belong, belong, mercy. More, more vocab, rachamim, and pardon, salicha. Both of these words are plurals in the Hebrew. We translate them singular, belong, mercy, and pardon. But I don't know, maybe we should translate it with plurals. The point is, to the Lord our God belong a multitude of mercies and pardons, right? I mean, yeah, God pardons me once and it's a done deal. But the the richness of that pardon merits and warrants it being described as as a multitude of pardons. It's like I've been granted a billion trillion pardons and a billion trillion mercies. At the point is liberalness, lavishness, abundance. When God is merciful, he's not partly merciful. It's, it's, not a, it's not a scale of mercy. To him belongs a multitude. The point then is, as David says in Psalm 51, he prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant, and here's the plural, rachamim, according to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. And we read the same idea in Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will, how will he pardon? Abundantly. Abundantly. I think when we, when we get the abundant part of it, which when God pardons, it's abundant. How could it, how could it be anything else? But I don't think we get that all the time. So we need that word abundant to remind us of how richly we have been blessed. In the face of all our sin and wickedness, God is abundantly merciful and forgiving. We'll sing at the end of the service today, a, a, a hymn that repeats these words God's grace is greater than our sin. So, Rachamim comes from the Hebrew word for womb, Rechem. Rachamim, Rechem, merciful womb. It reminds us of a mother's tender compassion and feelings for the child she gives birth to. We know that in Isaiah, God says, even a mother may forget and neglect the child of her womb, but I will not forget you. Isaiah speaks of the stirring of God's inner parts. It's amazing we can even use that language of God who is spirit and has no body. right? But this tells us about him. The stirring of his inner parts and his compassions, his, his, his gut feelings right? toward us. And it's as a result of these abundant compassions that God also abundantly pardons. Right? Abundant compassions, abundant pardons. So have we known the peace? And I, I, I had the word joy before, but I wanted to make it, just say, have we known the, the peace? 
of daily encouraging ourselves with these words, to the Lord our God, belong rachamim and salicha, mercy and pardon. Now Daniel continues, verses 11 to 14. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us, Because we have sinned against him, he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. Turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice so he comes back again to this theme of tzedakah righteousness only now we see it revealed in three things number one God is always faithful He's, he's never unfaithful to his covenant number two the treachery we committed against the covenant when there was no excuse for it. Number three, the reality that we were fully warned about what the consequences of our sin would be. Brothers and sisters, this shows the true stupidity of all our sin. That God didn't, God didn't say, oh, I'm not going to warn you. He warned his people. He warns us. Daniel says, look what he says, the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. God didn't pour out on us something we weren't expecting or didn't tell us he would do. He only did what he said he would do. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers. So God is righteous. He only does what he said he would do. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. So Israel could never say they didn't know. They could never say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me this would happen? In fact, not only were they spelled out in the law of Moses, the covenant curses, but God says, I sent you my prophets over and over and over again, rising early to tell you, to turn you back, to warn you of what was coming. And so again, we see this blameworthiness of our sin and the perfect righteousness of all God's judgments. We, we know what our sin leads to. We, we know. We know where our sin goes. And we sin anyway. You feel the, the bondage of sin sometimes? When it feels like it's just got its roots entwined in me and its bars around me and its chains right, shackling us. We know the consequences and we sin anyway. I'm going to, Genesis 2, 16 to 17, I'll, I'll, I'm going to skip over that for right now, but Daniel says, we refused to gain insight by God's truth. And so we became the ultimate fools. We brought down on our own heads, we did it. Allah and Ra'ah, curse and calamity. Verse 16, Af and Chema, anger and wrath. We brought it down on our own heads. The people of Israel learned by experience. And so will all who refuse to seek the Lord, how? With, with 
humble pleas for mercy. That as we read in Hebrews chapter, uh, well, no, that was Hebrews 12, with uh, our God is a consuming fire, but therefore it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So now we come to verse 15. Now, I want to ask you, we're going to say, see this in a minute, but has Daniel asked for anything yet? Do you notice? Daniel has not asked for a single thing. All he keeps doing is saying, you're so perfect and we're so terrible. <laughs> for, for, for 14 verses, that's all he's done. He hasn't asked for a thing. Or has he? This whole prayer is a plea for mercy. So, brothers and sisters, a good portion of our prayers of confession ought to be simply a rehearsing of our own faults and unworthiness and an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness and perfection. That in itself is a plea for mercy. But, okay, let's come to verse 15. Daniel says in verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Now you get that. And now, O oh Lord, our God, and you think, okay, here's the conclusion. We're wrapping it up. Almost seems like the end of the prayer. And there's like this hopeless finality in it. You're perfect. We're terrible. We deserve our punishment. Okay. We were wrong to think that because everything Daniel has said so far has been his plea to God. Because he knows who he's talking to. He knows he's talking to a God who is abounding in mercies and pardons. So he, he, doesn't, he knows he doesn't need to constantly be asking. He knows he needs to come before God humbly, transparently, turning his face, not hiding the sin. He knows he needs to just simply acknowledge that God has been right in all that he's done. And as Daniel does that, he knows the Lord is hearing him. He knows the Lord is hearing the cry of his heart. To this point, Daniel hasn't formally asked a single thing. All he's done is what we've just said. And so there is a sense in which everything that's been said to this point is just preparation for what Daniel prays now. And as we read this longer section, watch for the vocab. Watch for all the words that keep showing up here at the end. And now suddenly we have Petition upon petition upon petition. Oh, Lord. According to all your righteous acts. Tzavakah. Let your anger off and your wrath, chemah, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities, Cheta and Awon of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer to Pila of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. Tachanun. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face, Paneh, to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas. There it is again. Same word, tachanun. You could say our pleas for mercy before you because of our righteousness, because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear 
O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And at the end of the day, I guess I would just want to ask like this. Have we ever known what it is to pray like that? Have we known what it is? Because it's not about, at the end of the day, it's not about learning vocab, is it? It's not about being able to repeat after Daniel. Although that's fine, if it's from our heart. What it's about is, just, is, is being able to identify with Daniel in this awareness of how spiritually destitute we are in coming before the Lord so that we come before him only in this way with pleas for mercy. Do we know from experience, not just in our heads from having learned it in a, in a sermon or something, but do we know from our own experience that to the Lord our God belongs righteousness? And abundance of mercy and pardon. Again, let that abundance of mercy and pardon melt your heart. Melt your heart in a very subjective way, but also in an objective way. Melt your heart to fully just come to him not hiding anymore, knowing that, yes, yes, coming to the light exposes my sins, right? but it also exposes me to the mercies of a God who pardons. Luke chapter 18. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And I think we're all religious and spiritual enough to know we ought not to be trusting in ourselves that we're righteous, but in our own ways we do. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I don't do the terrible sins that they commit. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If we ever wanted to know what the sinner's prayer is, that's the sinner's prayer. And so Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, or we could say, everyone who justifies himself will be humbled. And the point there is humbled, not necessarily in a good way. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Are you that person who went to his house justified? Because, because you prayed the sinner's prayer. <laughs> And I like to be able to use that because, you know, in our, in our culture, we have to say, pray the sinner's prayer and you're good, right? But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the true heart of the sinner, the true sinner's prayer, which says, 
which won't even lift up your eyes to heaven because you're so aware and so cognizant of your own unworthiness and blameworthiness, beating your breast and praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Are we then those who humble ourselves so that it might be God and only God who in his great mercy lifts us up? Because he doesn't leave us in the dumps, does he? He doesn't leave us groveling where we placed ourselves. No, he lifts us up. He exalts us. Invites us into even relationship with himself. His face shining upon us. Are we then those who show to others the same forgiveness that we ourselves have received? Daniel rooted all his pleas for mercy, not in his own righteousness, but in God's zeal for the glory of his own name. And, 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 and sometimes we have a hard time understanding that. But at the very least, we can say now that the glory of God's name is revealed how? In your handouts, revealed in his righteousness and in the abundance of his mercies and compassions. God is zealous for the display of his glory. And his glory is revealed in us, in his mercies and compassions. So Daniel says, for your own sake, This is a rebuke to our self-centered approach to the gospel and to Christianity. Because how does he pray? For your own sake. We need to learn that vocabulary. When, When we come to confession, when we come to God in prayer, we need the vocabulary of Daniel here to say, For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For the sake of your name, delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So today, I just wanted to bring us back through the word of God, through Daniel, to just the bare bare bones of the gospel and of what what we confess as, as a people of God. When we seek the Lord, and I'll ask again, do you seek him? Is your life a seeking of God? With all your heart, remind you, there's no other way to seek God than with all your heart. And again, we know what we mean by with all your heart. Not, not double-minded. Not saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to seek, I'll do that. But all the time, no, I really want to seek this. Let, that, let not that man think he'll receive anything from the Lord. Right? James says, When we seek the Lord, we seek the one today whose very name is Jesus. When when Daniel turned his face to seek the Lord, he sought the God who was gracious and compassionate. But he did not yet know God by the name Jesus. Do you realize that? We today, when we seek God, we seek him by the name Jesus, which means Savior the one who shed his blood for us as we're about to come to this table and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness, the full and free 
pardon of all, all our sins. So, let's come together to this table and come as the sinners that we know that we are in ourselves and rejoice in the abundant mercies and pardons of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, teach us the vocabulary of prayer, of confession, of, of, of really the, the, the posture that we ought to have every day before you, who is perfectly faithful in all your ways, never unfaithful, ever, 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 perfectly righteous, even were you to condemn even were to you to have condemned us and not to have shown us mercy, even in our condemnation would have been revealed your perfect righteousness and faithfulness. And yet we praise then and thank you that to you also belong mercy and pardon. Oh Lord, remind us of this every day. And that Lord, as we as we receive these mercies and pardons from you, let us, let us live out a life that shows we have received that, that shows we understand it. Let us love one another. Let us be long-suffering with one another, patiently bearing with one another as you have borne with us. Let us show mercies and compassions to others, forgiving as we've been forgiven. Lord, let us, as we come to this table, Rejoice above all else, above all other earthly treasures or things that we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.